0: Now let's turn together to the Word of God in the Scriptures of the New Testament, the letter of 1 John. You will find this following the letter to the Hebrews and James and First and Second Peter, well on in the New Testament. The book of 1 John, we encourage you to follow the reading uh, in the Bible you may have brought with you or the pew Bible in front of you. Uh, Chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 1 and 2 only. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where we read these words. This is the, I'm sorry, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we're going to stop there this evening. This is the living and abiding word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now on these Sunday evenings together, as a number of you know, we are exploring the great teaching and the great themes of the book of First John together. And we have seen in the opening chapter some of those themes that are being so richly and helpfully unfolded for us. The themes of the Word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus, being manifested to us in the flesh, And the great teaching that the purpose of his manifestation is that he might lead God's people into fellowship with God, into communion with God, into friendship with God, the very highest blessing, in a sense, of the Christian life. And we have seen him expound further the theme that God is light. The God who has drawn us into this fellowship is in his very being and essence a God of light in whom there is no darkness at all. And so on the last Sunday evening or so, we have been exploring together John's application of these truths that if God is light, then we who profess the name of God should walk no longer in darkness, but in that light into which we have been brought. And particularly last Sunday evening, we saw in verse 6 and 7, John's warning against those who profess to be Christians, but walk in what we called libertinism considering that sin is not important and that we can live virtually as we please. Or those in verse 8 who treat sin lightly in another way that we call escapism, that do not want to be responsible for their sinful acts. Or those again in verse 10 as chapter 1 concluded who have a perfectionist view and claim indeed that having come to a knowledge of the true God and into fellowship with him, no longer sin at all, the doctrine of perfectionism. And you remember we examined these things last Sunday evening and saw that John first dealt with them and then exposed them and then gave to us the biblical answer that is contrary to them. But if we have been called by the God of light, we are indeed to walk in light and find that God provides provision for us if and when we sin. Now, it's always possible in the teaching of Scripture to find that what the writer brings to us can be misunderstood. And so in the opening two verses of chapter 2, John is clearly anticipating such a misunderstanding. And behind verses 1 and 2, we are to see those detractors of the teaching of John, the Johannine teaching, who say, well then, if John the Apostle has been emphasizing the reality and presence of sin, and that we are not to discount it, If, in other words, sin is inevitable, then why should we struggle against it? In other words, you will sin, whatever you do, though we are not to continue in it. So you may as well resign yourself to it. Or else they may well have been other detractors of John's teaching who took a slightly different view and said, well, John has emphasized that forgiveness is available to us, whatever we do. So why worry about committing sin at all? And the conclusion might well have been drawn by these detractors and opponents of John's teaching that John doesn't really believe in victory over sin at all. Because he has denied libertinism and escapism and perfectionism, perhaps he's teaching us that there is no victory over sin. And that's where we've arrived this morning in the wonderful and short and lovely verses, the first two verses of chapter 2 of this great book. Now I want you to look at these two verses with me this evening, and the purpose of them, let me say right away, is to tell us that if we are believers, sin should not be a habitual process with us. But if we sin on occasion, God has made a wonderful provision for our forgiveness. In fact, it's a twofold provision, a double provision for the the sins of believers. And it resides, as we're going to see this evening, in the written word on one hand, and in the word incarnate, the Lord Jesus, on the other hand. Now I want you then to look at these things for your encouragement and for mine here tonight uh, in three ways. And the first of them, as you can see from the sermon notes on the bulletin this evening, is to look at what John is saying in terms of the promise, the written word of God. Now you notice that this is in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Now this is the first part, as I said, of the double provision that God has so graciously and wonderfully made for his church uh, and for sin in believers. And there are two things about this provision that I want to draw out and focus your attention upon. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And the first thing is that here we have an enduring application to our lives in which sin happens. There's none here this evening that can really say whatever our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus may be, and however long we have made that profession, and however sure we are that we are children of God, there is not one of us here, I venture to say this evening, who may stand in the presence of God and say, I do not sin. And the first provision, you see, that God makes for the believer is that he comes to the believer and provides an enduring application, an enduring remedy. I write this to you so that you will not sin. What is that enduring application and remedy? It is the written word of God. Why is John writing this letter? He's writing it, in other words, in order that we will not habitually, as Christian men and women, continue in sin. Therefore, the provision that God is making, according to John, is the written word to prevent us from habitually continuing in sin. Now, as we've seen, John is very well aware But the devastating effects of our sin and disobedience to God as professing Christians is that our fellowship with God is sundered. We no longer have fellowship with him when sin is dominant in our lives. But God has made expressly a provision for his children in that event. Where do we find it? In the word of God. Do you recall with me this evening some of the things that that word says? Such as in First Peter 2 verse 24. who uh, Peter describing Jesus who in his own self, says Peter, bear in our sins in his own body on the tree. Bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Or in Romans 6 verse 2, where Paul, writing to the Romans, says, How shall we, who are dead to sin, live any longer in it? Or again in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17, as Paul describes the position and the privileges of the Christian, listen to him there in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so we could go on and on through the scriptures with many quotations, many statements of fact, many many promises of God toward believers, and they all amount to this, that we were once slaves to Satan, that once we were bound in fetters to sin, that once we did indeed have sinful natures that were in control of all that we did and all that we were. But the word of God comes to us and it tells us the great and beautiful news that Christ has conquered sin in the believer, that he has broken its fetters, that sin shall not have dominion over us, that in becoming children of God, we are children of light and have left the darkness forever behind. And we live in the power of a new nature that enables us to live lives that are pleasing to God. Now you see, we find this In the written word of God, my dear children, I am writing to you that you may know the power and the presence of these things that are promised to you. Now, beloved, you will know, I'm sure, many experiences in your own life when the word of God has been the means of deliverance out of sin that has coiled you and entrapped you in its snares. I think of the pages of Christian history and go back those many centuries into the 4th century AD when the young Augustine was the subject of a work of God's Spirit as he strove against sin, the immorality in which he was caught. He was not yet a Christian. But God had planned his conversion and chosen him, as you well know, as an anointed instrument of grace for the Christian church in the 4th century, one of the great Christian fathers as we know him to this day. And some of you may recall how he came into the Christian faith, that as he was in the garden of a friend's house, struggling against the immorality that he knew was wrong, yet had caught him in its coils, he suddenly heard the voice of a child in a nearby garden, calling out in a childish game, Tolle Leggy, Tolle leggy!" said the child. Take up and read, take up and read. It was a childish game that some children were playing. And at Augustine's feet lay a roll of the scriptures that he had been reading and immediately sensing that this was the very voice of God to him from heaven, he picked up the scroll and it fell open at Romans chapter 13 where he read the words, No longer in uncleanness and wanton living, and so forth, but put on the righteousness of Christ, wrote Paul. And as he read those verses from Romans 13, the Holy Spirit enabled him to come to faith and to believe that in Christ there was power to release him from the awful sins that he knew were separating him from God and bringing him under condemnation justly before the tribunal on high. And in that moment, the word of God released him from the power and dominion of sin. And so it is, you see, that this is God's provision for the believer's sinning in the written word. So we should seek a life that is steeped in and obedient to the will of God in Scripture if we are to avoid the practice of sin. Now the second thing about this provision, the written word of God, is that we have in it an endearing appeal. Not only an enduring application, but I suggest to you a very endearing appeal. How does the Lord address his people in the words of John? Do you notice at the beginning of verse 1, my dear children? That is how he addresses them in terms of loving endearment. And there is nothing at all severe here, is there? The word of God to the unbeliever often comes in severity, warning him and awakening him to the seriousness of his sin. But for the believer, a sacrifice has been offered, a work has been done, an advocate, as we will see, is pleading for them in heaven, and God comes to them in terms of endearment. My dear children, my beloved ones, he says to them, and it's a term used six times, you may be interested to know, in this short letter, the book of First John. And you see, God in the aged apostle is reminding them of his love for them in making this provision in his words. It's a lovely thought. Here is the eldest of all the surviving apostles, we believe, late in the first century, writing this letter, which is one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. And here is a man taking on the, fa- the role of the father of God's faithful people. And he's bringing to them the word of God, the gospel that has set them free. And he's re-echoing. The very words of Jesus in John's gospel. My little children, Jesus said, do not be afraid. As they thought of him, you remember, leaving them in the world alone and promised to bring to them the Holy Spirit as the one who would be with them always. So John, the aged apostle, picks up this language of Jesus and brings it to the attention of believers. I'm reminded of the words of Tennyson in his great poem, Ulysses, sadly not read very much in these days. Strong in will to strive, says Tennyson, to seek, to find, and not to yield. And this is what John wants to convey to them. And he does so coming to them in words of tenderness and of the heavenly Father's love and concern for them, that they may be strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. And he says to them, My beloved ones, my little children, realize the richness of God's provision for you in your occasional sinning in his written word of promise. Oh, my friends this evening, what comfort, what joy it is for the believer that God has made provision in this tender and this very loving way, tenderly reminding his children of that first provision of his in the word of God written. Now the second source, you see, of John's application of the forgiveness of God to the believer is in the thought of what I've called the paraclete in verse 1 at the end, verse 1b. There is the written word at the beginning of the verse, and there is the second provision of God at the end of it. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ The righteous one. Now, we know it should always be our position and our desire not to commit sin as professing Christian people. We have been delivered from its power. But John is so realistic as we have seen, and he says there will be occasions when the Christian does fall into sin. Habitually, he does not sin because the seed of God is within him. And the new nature delivers him from the practice of sin. But on occasion, he falls into it. And here is the second provision in the advocate or the paraclete concerning whom I want to suggest that there are three truths given to us by suggestion or directly in John's word. Now, the first of these is to bring to our consciousness how very serious all sin really is, even in the life of the believer. Now, why do I say that? Because John reminds us that we need an advocate or a paraclete, as it is in the original Greek, the word parakletos. And you see, the thought behind John's use of that word comes from the Greek courts with which he was familiar, where the accused, just as in our courts of justice today, would usually need someone to plead his case and to defend him. It's a rare thing even today when the accused dispenses with the need for an advocate and pleads his own defense. He must be very sure of his case in order to do it and his powers to persuade the judge and jury. But these paracletes or advocates in John's time were men of unblemished character and men usually of great influence whose character and gifts were widely respected in the court and who would stand by the accused and support him in the hour of need and speak for him against the charges that were brought against him. And usually the issue was decided on the basis of the paraclete's preparation and delivery, whether the accused were condemned or acquitted depended so much on the efficacy of the advocate who represented him. Now, beloved, what John is saying to us, first of all, then, is surely obvious that we are in trouble, in deep trouble, in more trouble sometimes than even as Christians we want to realize in that we need a heavenly advocate to take up our case. In other words, we do not come to plead it in our own merits. But we recognize that it's often hopeless unless that heavenly advocate takes up our case for us. Let me ask you then this evening, do you realize yourself the seriousness of sin? That the parakletos is necessary, and in Greek the word is very suggestive, meaning one called alongside, from the preposition para and the verb kalio to call. And when you put them together in the noun parakletos, you get one called alongside you to help you and support you and sustain you in the dire hour of danger and of need. Now in John's Gospel, in the later chapters, that paracletos, or paraclete, or advocate, is the Holy Spirit. But here in John, verse 1, the paraclete is without any question the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, only those who have never fully realized the seriousness and the dimension of danger into which your sin has brought you, can ever say, I do not need that advocate to plead for me. Beloved, is there ever any such? Scripture tells us in 1 John 1 verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, we make God a liar. In Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Acts 9, the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a man who thought himself inwardly righteous and doing the whole will of God as he persecuted the church. Yet a man who was brought to his very knees and humbled to the dust as he lay prostrate before the glory of Christ, And in that blinding revelation that came to him on the road to Damascus, he realized, as he tells us later, that he was the very chief of sinners in need of the work of a heavenly advocate. How very serious sin is. But you know, the second thing that this reference to the advocate teaches us is the person of the advocate, that there is none but Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous, says John, is the one you need. Who is the one we need? Jesus, in his human nature, who has entered into our frailty and tasted the pains and temptations of this fallen world, and all without sin, as one now living above forever in an endless life, who is able to sympathize with us. He is Christ who exercises that office of advocate with all the anointed authority of God upon him. But more than that, he is the righteous one, the only one suitable to stand in the presence of the holy judge, the Lord Jehovah, who is altogether righteous himself, who in his character is unspotted and unblemished and never will plead a bad cause and whose influence prevails with the Father in every instance. There is no exception. And so you see, all his attributes are summoned together. Jesus, the Christ, the altogether righteous one, as he has become by God's appointment, the advocate for God's people in their sinning. I'm reminded of the shorter catechism question this evening, how lovely it is that we are learning that catechism on Sunday mornings. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Ask the question. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be both God and man in two distinct natures and one person. Forever. What a beautiful description of the heavenly advocate whose ministry and mercy is extended to you and to me this evening. Do you remember Luther's great hymn that we often sing? A mighty fortress is our God. Do you remember the stanza that says, were not the right man on our side? Our striving would be what? losing. And oh, thank God this evening that the right man indeed is on our side. There is no other advocate, beloved than Jesus. And I'm reminded of the words of Thomas Bilney at the time of the Protestant Reformation who was coming out of the darkness of Roman Catholicism into the light of the biblical faith. And this is what he says. My soul was sick, and I longed for peace, but nowhere could I find it. I went to the priests, he says, and they appointed me penances and pilgrimages. Yet by these things my soul was nothing profited. At last, he says, I heard of Jesus, and he heard of him by reading, The New Testament, newly translated by the scholar Erasmus into the Latin language that everyone knew in those days. And he came to the place in the text that said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And says Bilney, that sentence did so lift my poor spirit, but the very very, uh, heart within me leaped for joy. It was as if, after a long, dark night, the day, at last, had broken. Do you know that experience where Jesus has become your advocate? Now, the third thing it teaches us is this, and very quickly here, that those who need an advocate need him always. There's never a time when we are without need of the work of Jesus. The word incarnate is what we need. Can you ever think one day in your Christian experience when you did not depend on him for the forgiveness of your occasional sin? And does that thought not drive us, as it were, into the very arms of Jesus? who has said to us so lovingly and tenderly in those terms of endearment, my little children, my dear children, if we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you know these things, the written word and the word incarnate? Now there's a third thing that we need to look at ere we close this evening and that is that Jesus Christ is also the propitiation in verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only but for the sins of the world. We read. And the question simply arises here what argument then does our advocate present at the throne of grace? How does he precisely plead our cause before the judge of all? And the answer is in that word that John gives to us, he is the atoning sacrifice, or in the old and lovely English word, the propitiation for our sins. That's what he pleads, and it's on that basis that there is forgiveness For the believer's sin. Now let me say a word about this rendering, the atoning sacrifice in verse 2 in the New International Version. If you have another one this evening, if you're a visitor, maybe it's slightly different. But what I want to say is that that rendering is really not even adequate. And the old King James Version rendering, he is the propitiation for our sins, is the fully biblical and correct rendering. Because, you see, the difference is this. But if we say that Jesus was only an expiatory sacrifice, what we are saying is that in the death of Jesus, by the shedding of his blood... Our sins were covered over, as it were, from the sight of God and so removed and cancelled out. And that's what the word atoning sacrifice or expiatory offering means. But the word propitiation is so much richer... The first word only has reference, manward, to man's sin and God covering that sin. But the second word, the real word, propitiation, has a Godward aspect as well. It looks up to heaven, as it were, more particularly. Because propitiation means that in the covering of the sin in an expiatory way, God's wrath is placated and removed. And propitiation really means the covering of sin by sacrifice so that it removes the wrath of God from off the sinner. And you see, I'm afraid I have to say to you the reason why in so many modern translations the word expiatory sacrifice or atoning sacrifice is used is that for many modern theologians the very concept of a wrathful God is unacceptable. How can the Christian God be wrathful? We are asked. But all through the scriptures is my answer. 580 times In the Old Testament alone, the wrath of God Almighty is spoken of against the sinful conduct of men. And did not the Lord Jesus Christ himself preeminently speak of that wrath when he spoke, for instance, of the fire that is never quenched and the worm that never dies? And what John is telling us is something beautiful. Listen. But the wrath of Almighty God is covered by the expiatory sacrifice of Christ so God is able to be propitious toward us. We still use that word today. Isn't it a propitious time to do such things? Isn't this a propitious occasion? Meaning it's a very timely occasion. The time is ripe and God Is able in a timely way to be propitious to his people because of the propitiation of Christ. Oh, my friends, do you know this evening not only the work of Christ as advocate, but in your own conscience, the work of Christ as that great and only and unique propitiator of the sins of God's people. Now let me deal as I finish with one problem. Do you notice at the end of verse 2 that John says his propitiatory work is not only for the sins of God's children but apparently for the sins of the whole world. Now does that mean that everyone is saved? Is this universalism that is being taught here? And the answer, of course, is linguistically That would seem to be possible. There's no getting away from the language. Linguistically, it says that Christ died, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That the sins of the whole world stand in the same relation to the work of Christ as my sins do, as an elect believer. But you see, the problem is, if that were true, It would be contrary to the whole of the rest of Scripture. The parables of Jesus, where he separated the goats to his left hand and the sheep to his right. And even contrary to that great text of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, not everyone will believe, may find life. And it empties the cross of its meaning. So you see, the proper interpretation rather is not linguistically but biblically in the light of all of the Scripture's teaching that what John is saying to us with his thought of the Jewish sacrifices in his mind, the propitiating of the wrath of God being fulfilled in the death of Christ, he's saying this is not just for Jews as the Old Testament sacrifice was but for believers gathered in from the whole world. Do you see what he's saying? It's no longer limited within the confines of God's revelation within Israel, but the whole world of believing Jews and Gentiles are saved from sin by this work of propitiation. Not a narrow sectarianism, in other words, but a worldwide saviour not in the sense of universalism, that everyone will believe, but everyone who does believe is saved by this propitiation. Well then, I need to close this evening. Let me ask you, are you presenting your sins as a believer to God in the light of these truths? Are you comforted, even as I've preached to you this evening, But though I have fallen into sin today, I've lost my temper, perhaps with my children. I've told some untruth to my wife. I've disobeyed God's commandment in the last week by doing something unethical and dishonoring to God in my business relationships. Are you comforted this evening by the thought that God has made provision even for your unfaithfulness in the written word? in the Word incarnate who comes to us as advocate and as the propitiatory sacrifice that cancels out both our sin and God's wrath that would be against us. Oh, my dear friends, what motives for living in holiness. Far from saying that sin doesn't matter and we can continue in it. What motives to holiness and obedience to God are here. And we need these things as much as ever. Does it not lead us to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that Christ died for all of us and therefore all died. And in that he died for all, he did so that we should live and should not henceforth live for ourselves. May God indeed enable us to do these very things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in this great message so much, gathered from two little verses of Scripture, for the encouragement of believers hard-pressed by sin. May these truths sustain us through the days of this coming week of a glory of God and the increase of his work in our souls for his name's sake amen